We've heard that time is a dimension. Yet there's something unique about time. Unlike length, height, and width, we can't move freely through time. We are caught in the flow of it, living from one moment to the next. And to make things even stranger, your now might be different than my now. Events that you see happening at the same time, I may see in quick succession. And then there's the question of reality. What is real? Is the only thing that is real the here and now? Or is the past real too? And if the past is real, what about the future? And if future events are real, does this mean that the future is already written? Questions about time have plagued philosophers throughout time itself. And closely related is the idea of time that comes from religion. Religion has its own concept of time, closely intertwined with that that we see in philosophy and physics. So putting it all together, what does it all mean? What is reality when it comes to the flow of time? And what does this tell us about our own humanity and even God? This is Spark Dialogue Podcast. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you happen to find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to all different facets of our life, from history to religion to philosophy to ethics to culture. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. I want to give a special thank you to all of my patrons who have helped in the production costs of this podcast. You guys are totally awesome. And if you're not a patron and you would like to become one, check out patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Timothy Manis. I recently finished a PhD at Boston University in their religious studies department in uh, the science and religion track. So one way of talking about what I do would be to say that I'm a scholar of science and religion. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree in, in physics, so I sort of come at this from, from a couple of angles. Another way of, of saying what I do is that I'm a, a philosophical theologian. Uh, that's the way my advisor likes to talk about it. I like to talk about God and God's relationship with human beings and with other things through the lens of philosophy, using some of the language of philosophy. Our relationship with time is interesting. We experience the present, but we also remember a past. And in a few minutes, we know what we will experience is the future. We can remember the past, but the future remains cloaked in mystery. Why do we experience time in this way? What is real? Time is a notoriously slippery concept. The, the Christian theologian Augustine uh, once said that he knew perfectly well what time was, provided that nobody ever asked him to define it. That's certainly true, I find, in, in the way that we, we talk about time. There are a few different ways that philosophers try to understand time. I think in, in discussing our experiences of time, uh, I found it really useful to go to a category or a pair of categories, rather, that uh, this philosopher named James McTaggart set up in the early 20th century. He talked about uh, the A series and the B series of time. Right away here, we're running up against the fact that philosophers are often not very imaginative when they name things. So the A series of time uh, is the one that relates events in time in terms of past and present and future. It's easy to see the difference between events here. Uh, nobody can can mistake past uh, and present and future with each other. So in in the present, we, uh, we experience things directly. They're directly present to our senses. Events in our life are in constant motion flowing from a future idea to a moment experienced to memories of the past. 
we experience past things through memory. We know what happened to us in the past. Our, our memories are, are more or less good. Uh, and when we confer with other people about what happened in the past, we can get e- an even solider idea of, uh, of what happened. Past events are, are relatively definite. But that's not true about what we see in the future. Future is sort of the realm of guessing and conjecture and planning, where people can make assumptions based on things that have happened before about what might happen in the future. They can say to themselves, all right, I'm, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that if this other thing should happen. But uh, it's, it's not known to us in the same way that the present and the past are. The future seems to be open. It's unknown, and it's potentially at least shapeable by the things that we choose to do in the present. You know, what, what happens to me tomorrow will depend in part on the things that I do today. These, these distinctions between past and present and future tend to be reflected in our language. Uh, not all languages talk about it in quite the same way, but uh, it's, it's very common, at least, for, for us to talk, you know, talk differently in a very fundamental way about past, present, and future events. When we think about events in time, we can also think of them in another way, called the B-series of time. In this way of thinking, events of the past, present, and future have no real physical difference between them. They're all equally real, existing as they would on a calendar on the wall. Whereas in the A-series, events are related in terms of past and present and future, in the B-series, events are just related in terms of before and after. And uh, those things are, are, are more different than they might appear at first glance. So we, we use the B-series, for instance, when we're planning out schedules. When you think about, you know, what am I going to be doing next Wednesday? Uh, you say to yourself, well, you know, I've got a block of time from, you know, when I wake up at 7.30 until I go to bed at 10 or 11. And, uh, you know, in between, I'm going to have lunch at around noon. And then I have this other meeting at 9 a.m. and some third meeting at 2 p.m. and I should set aside some time to do some research, so I'll do that between 3 and 5, or, or whatever else. So we, we only ask in the B-series about what comes before or what comes after something else. We, we don't have that same sense of distinction between past and present and future. You could see that in, in the same way when you talk about events like on a timeline. If you're in a history class, for instance, and you could say that the Norman invasion of England started in 1066, and this event happened in, in this month of that year, and this other event happened in this other month, and uh, you're just talking about events, you know, sort of in a sequence, as opposed to with these these great distinctions among past and present and future. Uh, already, you can see that there's sort of this analogy between the B series, that way of looking at time, and space. Uh, that doesn't exist in the same way between the A-series and time. So those are two ways of looking at time, and we use them both. Uh, you know, when, when we're planning our schedules, I know I, I mentioned that we, we use the B-series, but at any given point, if in order for me to say, all right, there's this event in my schedule, but it is time for me to go to this event now, I have to bring in the A-series, right? Uh, in order for me to say, it is now noon, it is now time for me to go to see my friend, I have to bring in concepts of present, which don't exist in the B-series, only before and after. So, I need both A and B 
as I go about living my life. So the key question is, which one of those two is the more fundamental one? That's a great question. We experience both of these types of time, but there's some fundamental differences between them. Namely, what is really real? Is just the present real? Certainly, the events in the past were real too, but are they still real? If past events are real, what about the future events? And does that mean they're set in stone? Is the future written? Thoughts like this make my head hurt. You you immediately have to ask, well, what do you mean by real? And that in itself is a tricky question to answer. So uh, one way to look at this would be to to think think of things spatially, right? So imagine that you're taking a train. Uh, you're on the Amtrak and you're going up the East Coast of the U.S. And, you know, you start out in Washington, D.C., and then you're in Philadelphia, and then you're in, in New York, and then you're in Boston, and then you get off the train. Right? So if you imagine time like that, then you can suppose that, uh, you know, that in that way, that even while you're in Philadelphia, right, even though you're not in D.C. anymore, D.C. hasn't stopped being real. And even though you're not in Boston yet, Boston is real. Just because you're not immediately experiencing them doesn't mean they're they're not real. Now, let's you know, to, to give a a counterexample. Let's let's say, uh, for example, Tolkien's Middle Earth. Right um, now, there are things that we can say about Middle Earth. You know, we can say, all right, you know, in the West, here's the Shire where the hobbits live, and then you know, then there are the Misty Mountains where Bilbo finds the Ring. And then, you know, there's, there's Mirkwood after that, and there's Gondor, you know, southeast of that. And, you know, we can sort of have these discussions about Middle Earth, and we can sort of agree on what we're talking about. You know, when I say Middle Earth, if you've read the books or seen the movies, you have a particular set of images that come to your mind. You know what I'm talking about. But we can agree that Middle Earth isn't real, okay? When I am taking this train, uh, and I'm in Philadelphia, even though I'm not experiencing D.C., I can say that DC is not like Middle Earth. DC has a reality to it that Middle Earth doesn't have. And Boston, even though I'm not there yet, is not like Middle Earth. It has a reality to it that Middle Earth doesn't have. So when we're talking about the reality of the uh, of the past and the future, everybody more or less agrees that the present is real. So the question is, is our life, like a train journey like that, where the, the, the place where we currently are is no more or less real than the places we've been before and the places we're going to go, right? Where the, the things that happened yesterday are real in the same way as the things that are happening now and the things that will happen tomorrow are as real and as real in the same way as the things that are happening now where tomorrow becomes like Boston and yesterday becomes like DC. The people who think that, that this is true, that all events are real in the same way, uh, they tend to call themselves B theorists because they think that B series, that, that schedule, that timeline way of looking at time is the more fundamentally true one. And under this way of thinking, uh, the, the A series, this past, present, and future business, is just an illusion that comes from, actually, they're not quite sure where. Uh, it's something that goes on with our brains, and it's a bunch of personal stuff that only happens inside of our heads. And the real time is this time that we can express 
in terms of lists and numbers these ways. The, the time, time as we express it in physics, for instance, where you can say, you can express everything you need to know about a time by saying, all right, it's time equals five seconds after a particular point. You know, physics doesn't directly involve questions of past, present, and future in this way. In that case, if you are a bee theorist, all dinosaurs are still real. They're just at a different point of time that is no less real than the point of time that we are experiencing. That being said, future cities floating in the clouds of Saturn are also real. But not everybody thinks like this. So on the other hand, you have people who call themselves A-theorists who think that the A-series, the past, present, and future way of looking at time, is the more fundamental one. And that the B-series is just a way of writing time down, basically, that, that you know, by the nature of writing things down, loses some of the, the, the vividness and character of, uh, of time. So like a time in this way is not like a train journey. It's not the case that um, our future is, is already there waiting for us in some sense, in the same way that, that a future, stop, future stops on a train journey are there for us. The future doesn't exist yet. Different atheists disagree about the degree to which uh, the past exists now. Some of them want to say that, yeah, that the past has a certain kind of existence. It's not real in quite the same way that the present is real, but it is real. And then there are some who want to say, no, the past has ceased to be. Uh, it's it's just a, a thing that no longer is. We remember it, but it is it does not exist. If you think this is weird so far, we're now going to add in relativity. It totally messes everything up. Before I get into that, uh, let's just say a few words about Newton so we can talk about, you know, what, what, what view of time is being messed up, right? How did we think about time in physics before relativity? So Newton, in his writing about time, uh, and time for Newton is, is one of those fundamental physical quantities like distance or like mass, uh, you know, how heavy something is, roughly speaking. And Newton presumes, because why wouldn't you, uh, that in principle, everybody can agree on when now is, right? So it might be the case, for instance, that, you know, it's, it's noon here on the East Coast. And, you know, for my friends out on the West Coast, it's 9 a.m. Uh, but we could agree if we could send a signal instantaneously from where I am to where they are, that there is some time that we can agree is now. And that though it might take some time in, uh, in actual reality, for messages to travel from me to them, you know, if I were to send them a letter, it would probably take a few days to get there. But that doesn't really make much of a difference to physics. So there's a now that I share with the people on the West Coast. There's a now that I share with uh, the rovers currently on Mars. There is a now that I share with anybody who might be living in the Andromeda galaxy. There is a single now for the entirety of the universe. And the fact that there's there's a single now means that we can all agree on what happens after that now, or you know what's in the future, if you look at things from an A-series point of view, and what happens before that now, or what happens in the past, if you look at it from an A-series point of view. Everything is, is all very neat and tidy. But that's not the way things actually work. In fact, your now may be different than my now. And then Einstein comes along and takes this beautifully neat and tidy theory and replaces it with a beautiful, weird, and counterintuitive theory. The way that Einstein explains things starts from the fact that uh, 
In fact, it does matter very much how long it takes for signals to travel from one place to another, that it's impossible for something to affect something else without sending a signal at some definite speed. And the very fastest speed at which any signal can be sent is the speed of light, which is a finite speed. It's not infinite. One of the things this means is that our sense of what is now and what's before and after, or alternately, what's past and what's present and what's future, gets a little bit more complicated. And uh, one of the ways that we talk about that is uh, something that, that physicists call the relativity of simultaneity, which is to say that what things we say happen at the same time are simultaneous. Uh, well, it depends. It depends on where you are and how fast you're moving. So the classic example of this is, uh, imagine, again, somebody on a train. So imagine that you have a train car and two lightning bolts strike the front and the back of the train car at exactly the same instant. For Einstein, the way that you know something happened is that a signal from that thing reaches you. So light from the lightning bolts reaches any particular observer that you might be talking about. From the point of view of somebody sitting in the very middle of the train car, if both of those lightning bolts are striking at exactly the same time, and they're sitting in exactly the middle of the train car, then the light from those two lightning bolts is going to reach them at exactly the same time. So that person is going to say, okay, uh, two lightning bolts, light is hitting me from both of them at exactly the same time. So I'm going to judge that these two lightning bolts struck at exactly the same moment. Now, imagine, again, that there is somebody standing on a platform watching the train go by. The motion of the train means that the light from these two lightning bolts are not going to hit that person's eyes at exactly the same time. So the lightning bolt from one end of the train say it's the back end because the train is pulling away, is going to hit that person's eyes slightly sooner than the light from the lightning bolt at the front of the train. And that means that this person is going to see the back lightning bolt as happening slightly before the front lightning bolt. Now, in our usual experience of things, the distances are so small and the speeds are so slow that these effects don't really matter. We don't notice them. Um, but if you are talking about astronomical distances or very great speeds, or if you need to be very, very precise about when things happen, then you start to see these effects. So for instance, when you are trying to set up a global positioning network, uh, one of the things that you have to do in order to do that, you have to know within tiny, tiny fractions of a second when signals arrive. And that requires you to take these relativistic effects into account. Here's the really wild part. Normally, we would say in our ordinary way of looking at things that, all right, you know, one of these two people, the person on the train and the person sitting on the platform, they might look at things differently. But one of these ways of looking at things has got to be right and the other's got to be wrong, right? You know, one person is sitting still and the other one's moving. So clearly the person is, that's sitting still is correct and the person that's moving is wrong. And 
that works perfectly fine from a Newtonian way of looking at the world, where there's what you could call an absolute frame of rest. So it's possible for Newton, uh, for from Newton's point of view, I should say, to know whether somebody is moving or sitting still. Einstein doesn't assume that. Einstein says instead that the only way you can judge whether something is moving is by looking at something else. I'm sure we've all had that experience of sitting on a train. Trains are coming up a lot in this podcast. And you're looking at another train next to you out the window. And one of the trains starts to move really slowly. And you're not quite sure whether it's your train that's moving or the one that's sitting next to you that's moving because the experience of the acceleration is so slight. Anyway, what Einstein is saying is that that really tells you something fundamental about how motion works, that you can't fundamentally say who is sitting still and who is moving. You can only say that, for instance, person A is moving with respect to person B. And that allows you to say, on the other hand, that person B is moving with respect to person A. And you can't choose between them. Each of them is right on their own terms. So for Einstein, there is no fundamental truth about whether these two lightning bolts hit the train car at the same moment. Person A sitting on the moving train says that they do. Person B sitting on the platform says that they don't. But there's no way to pick between these two points of view. They're both right on their own terms. So if you can't say, fundamentally speaking, whether two things happen at the same time, it becomes really hard to identify a single now. It becomes impossible, in fact, because you can't say, all right, these are all the things that happen now, because people are going to disagree about when things happen. So if there's no fundamental now that everybody can agree on, then by the same token, there's there's no fundamental past or future. We can all agree that things that are causally connected to each other, that uh, that have the capacity to affect one another, a cause will happen before its effect, because that's the way that relativity works. Uh, so that, that sort of before and after uh, way of looking at time that the B theory uh, presumes, that continues to work fine. But Without a fundamental now, without a present that everybody can agree on, then the A theory becomes, well, it becomes more tenuous. Okay, so far we've just been looking at things from a scientific or metaphysical point of view. But the concept of time is also very important to religion. The Abrahamic religions are very invested in thinking about time historically. That is to say that time for the Abrahamic religions is imagined as a story. It has a beginning, and it has a middle, and then it has an end. Of course, we begin in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 puts it, uh, and I'm going to translate very freely here, God brings the universe into being in the beginning. God acts in such a way that causes the universe to exist. That's the start. That's what kicks everything off. And then after that, you have living creatures, including human beings, and human beings go through their lives. And during that time, God interacts with human beings. And there's a, there's a process to that interaction. 
it's it's like a, it's like a conversation. It uh, later events depend on earlier events. You know what happens in the present relies in part on what what took place in the past. People are making their own decisions. They're looking at things that have already happened to them in their individual lives and their relationships with God, and they're making choices about how their futures are going to go. And they're making decisions, and in some cases, they're they're making big life-changing decisions. Choices that people make matter. People can look at past events and make decisions. People can change. This is a narrative where time is important. The narratives of the Abrahamic religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are full of stories of people who are living their lives one way, and then something happens to them that makes them reconsider, and they change the way they live their lives, or else they, they stop paying attention to something, and they start living their lives for the worse. Uh, and the way that they live their lives later is presumed to be more important than the way they lived their lives before. This kind of change depends on an a theory way of looking at time. If the things that happen after the change and the things that happen before the change exist in the same way, to the same degree, in the same way that Boston and New York and Philly all exist in the same way and to the same degree on the Amtrak, uh, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to say that, no, the things that happen later on this timeline are more important than the things that happen earlier, any more than it would make sense to say that arbitrarily things that happen in Boston are more important than things that happen in Philadelphia. To talk about change in this way, we're really depending on the ideas of past and present and future. This brings up an interesting tangent that we can explore now, the idea of free will. If we assume that we're free to act, then the future is yet unwritten. This would imply that the future is not real, like the past is real. And if God knows everything, does that mean that the future is indeed written? That's a big question, and it's one that people disagree about. Uh, certainly, there have been a lot of you know, really, really smart people over the years who want to have both things, who want to say that God has knowledge about future events and even plans for future events, but who also want to say that the future is to some extent open, uh, that we can affect it with decisions that we make now and that our, our decisions are freely made. Some modern philosophers or theologians are happy to say, yeah, no, we're, we're not really sure that works. Um, so we'll just say that, that God has only a, an incomplete or a conditional knowledge of what happens in the future. And that, you know, we could say that, that God has a really good idea of what people will do in the same way that if, you know, if you're really good friends with someone or if you're uh, thinking about a family member, that you might say, oh, yeah, I know so-and-so really well. So if you put them in this situation, I bet they do this, this, and this. Um, uh, some people, like a, like the philosopher John Lucas, would say, yeah, God knows us really well, so God has a pretty good idea of what we might do in the future, but God doesn't know that absolutely uh, in, in the way that, that God knows past events. Uh, so yeah, some, some philosophers and theologians uh, are, are willing to sort of let that idea of absolute future knowledge go. Others go about it in different ways. Um, so there is uh, uh, 
uh, a really great philosopher and theologian named Boethius, who made uh, this this really sort of vivid classic argument that um, that uh, God is uh, is like someone sort of sitting in a watchtower, uh, looking down on what happens on a road, and that uh, God sees all of the moments or rather God sees everything that happens on the road at the same time from the same point of view, but God isn't really on that road, right? God is sort of sitting outside it above it. So people have, have adapted this argument uh, to say that God is to a greater or a lesser extent, not in the flow of time as we experience it. And so maybe it's significant that even though God knows what will happen, it becomes a little complicated to say that God knows it now because God, because God doesn't quite share a now with us. Uh, God is sort of somewhere outside of, of time altogether, or at least experiencing it differently. So in that way, maybe God's knowledge of what we would call the future doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't constrain our action in quite the same way that, for example, if I knew exactly what you were about to do in five minutes, uh, from here within the same timeline as you, we, we might say that that constrained your uh, your action. But, you know, again, that's that's something that, that people disagree about. They argue about a lot. And then, of course, there is the future. The idea of times to come are very important in Abrahamic religions. We've talked about the, the beginning and the middle of time in, in Abrahamic context. And there's also a sense of an end of time, an end of time in which there is a final victory for goodness for love and care for other people over evil, over suffering, over hate, over destruction. That also depends on a distinction that the A theory requires. If all of those events of hatred and of hurt and of suffering continue to exist forever in the same way that that this ultimate fulfillment does, then it's hard to say what the victory is that's so important to Abrahamic ways of thinking about God. Again, there's there's sort of an assumption that what happens later is more important, that what happens later can change the meaning of what happened earlier. If we don't have an atheoretic way of looking at time, then that becomes really hard. Now, that's not to say that some people haven't tried. Uh, there are plenty of thinkers within the Abrahamic traditions who believe very strongly in something they call predestination, which tends to assume that God planned all of existence out beforehand, so to speak, although beforehand it becomes kind of a tricky term to use here. But I find that those people tend to, tend to run into theological problems. A lot of those questions about the meaningfulness of our choices and the reality of the changes we make and the, the questions of what we deserve for the actions we have taken become a lot harder to answer in that sort of predestinary and be theoretic way of looking at time. And in practice, a lot of those people, when faced with those questions, kind of have to throw up their hands and say, well, we don't know. This may not be so much of a problem for Eastern religions. Some of these religions think of time as being cyclical rather than linear. In Hinduism and in Buddhism and what we call the Vedic religions, there's an idea of time as, as just a cycle, like, a, like the seasons, right? Where certain eras of time, yugas, 
uh, are better than others. And for a while, people are good, and then they're not so good, and they're really bad. And then the cycle starts over again. There's no end point that things move toward. There's just that, that endless cycle that keeps rolling. And so in, in, a, in a Vedic way of looking at time, then, then maybe this A theory might not be quite so important. Where does this leave us? Can we match up our philosophical and religious ways of thinking of time with our scientific ones? Even before relativity, you have philosophers like Bertrand Russell, who say that the, the B theory of time is the better one, the more philosophically satisfactory one, because it is less personal and more scientific. And those two things are treated as synonyms for each other. That in order for a way of, of looking at the world to be scientific, it involves taking people out of the equation. It involves getting away from the, the sort of qualities of our, our sensory experience and getting instead into terms of, of writing things down. That way of, of looking at time, that B-theoretic way of looking at time, uh, tends to flow naturally with the idea that if past and present and future are just things that our brains are imposing on a, a way of looking at time that fundamentally doesn't have them, then maybe we should try and do without them. Maybe it's more scientific just to try and do without the ideas of past and present and future. So is that all there is to it? Time is in the flow of time is just all in our minds? Something we come up with to keep our puny brains from being overwhelmed by eternity? Uh, some philosophers go even further. This contemporary philosopher of time, D.H. Meller, who agrees with uh, Bertrand Russell that the B theory is better and more scientific, draws on this objection that goes back to James McTaggart. You remember the guy we talked about who came up with the, the A theory, B theory terminology? That one of the problems with the A theory is that you know, any given event, you know, say for instance the you know the moon landing, July twentieth, nineteen sixty nine, has to be both past, present, and future. All three, past, present, and future. It's future before it happens. It's present when it happens, and it's past after it happens. And past, present, and future are mutually exclusive categories. So and so clearly, a thing can't have all three of those categories. Uh, so the whole past, present, future distinction doesn't make sense. And a lot of people have, have argued with McTaggart on that point, but a lot of people have argued for him as well. So Meller says that by the same token, the idea of an I works the same way as the idea of a now. In the same way that a thing can't really be both now and not now, a given person can't be both I and not I. I think that I'm I, but you think that I am you, right? We can't agree on who I is. You think that you're I, I think that I'm I. Things are getting weird now, but somehow slightly more comprehensible. I think I am I. You think you are I. We can't agree, yet we're both right. Maybe our conceptions of time are similar. Through this, this philosophy of time kind of argument, that the whole idea of personhood fundamentally doesn't make sense. So right down the line, you see these really close linkages between our philosophy of time and the way we think about science and the way we think about personhood. If relativity comes along and says, all right, now we have a scientific answer to this philosophical question, then it makes that all the stronger. 
Now it's time to make our minds hurt once more. Let's go back to the beginning of the universe and the beginning of time. In the Big Bang, all matter, energy, and our entire universe was created. It was here that time started. So you can't really ask what happened before the Big Bang. Time didn't exist then. Looking at it from God's point of view, what would this look like? Was God just sitting around one day and decided, okay, today I'm going to create the universe? Is there another timeline, a God timeline, so to speak? Or you can even think about it without a creator. You know, that, that idea of, of time being a thing that's, that's created, right, uh, that, that goes back to our friend Augustine again, uh, the one who said that uh, he understood time perfectly well so long as nobody asked him to define it. Um, so, you know, if you, if you look at other creation stories, even the one in, uh, you know, in the ones in Genesis chapters one and two, there's, there's not quite the sense that time is a created thing and that before God created the universe, there was no time, right? There's, there's sort of a sense that, that, yeah, you know, God at some point decided to create the world, you know, that led to a lot of, a lot of debates about, does that essentially mean that God is sort of waiting around? And at some point God decides, all right, time to create the world, bang, world created. You know, if, if that's the case, why did God create the world then and not, you know, 10 minutes earlier? And so, so Augustine's idea of, of, you know, time is coming into existence with the moment of the universe coming into existence sort of solves some of those problems, but it certainly brings up other ones. And God's relationship to time is definitely a big one of those, uh, Augustine wanted to say that that God was was outside time altogether in the same way that, you know, I can look at, you know, like a YouTube stream of a particular place and not be there at all. I can see what's happening, but I'm not there. Uh, some other people want to say that God has a has a more complicated relationship with time. Sort of on on the other extreme with that, um you have I I mentioned John Lucas, uh, the philosopher earlier. He and the other philosopher William Lane Craig in an attempt to try and figure out a way to to make the a theory that that sort of flowing past present future way of looking at time to make that sing with relativity, they imagine a god who is right there in time with us, who is experiencing time in the same way that we do. Craig has this this whole system. In fact, um, relativity doesn't really require you to give up the idea of an absolute standard of rest. You know, you can go back to this this other scientist who is a contemporary of Einstein named uh, Heinrich Lorentz are, uh, and have a relativity that, that still has an absolute standard of rest and God is in some way in, you know, or helps to define that absolute standard of rest. And that means that uh, there is in fact one real now, and it's the one that God has, and that our motion with respect to this absolute standard of rest, you might be familiar with the uh, uh, the Friedman Robertson Walker metric of the expansion of the universe. He, you know, uh, Craig ties that in with uh, with this idea of of the, this, this universal reference frame, the frame of the expansion of the universe. And so, in that, uh, if Craig is right, and I think that his idea has a lot of problems, um, if Craig is right, then God is is right there experiencing time with us, and that God, though the time is uh, though, though God is timeless by by God's nature. That when God created, God sort of put on time. God entered time, and Craig is a Christian, and so it follows sort of very naturally for him. If he thinks of of the incarnation of God becoming a human being in Jesus, then he can sort of think of God 
putting on time as sort of analogous to that. That just as when when God becomes incarnate in Jesus, that sort of changes, you know, both what it means to be embodied and you know the nature of God. That in the same way that when God becomes the creator of the universe, when God makes that decision, God puts on temporality in, in sort of an analogous way. God enters time. Um, now again, that's I think that's that's an idea that has both philosophical and some scientific problems, but it's. You know, it's it's a very serious one that uh, that people can can disagree about. It's not just silly. The other philosopher, theologian that I that I spent a lot of time talking about in my my dissertation, soon to be book, is a uh, Robert John Russell, who's a, a a physicist as well as being a theologian, and uh, he draws a lot on the theology of this this guy named Wolfhard Pannenberg, and wants to say that there's there's a much more complicated relationship between time as we experience it. And eternity, which is to say sort of God's experience of things happening. And that God experiences events uh, in such a way that uh, their, their relationships with each other, their past and present and future relationships with each other are maintained while also being present in all events simultaneously. And part of the way that Russell does that is by really going whole hog on this idea of personal nows. Events in time are happening sort of on a stage, and God is sort of sitting in the royal box, looking down on everything that happens on stage. That uh, for Russell, God sees things in the play through the eyes of each of the actors. God is present to each one of us and sees what happens through all of our eyes, through all of our, all of our perspectives, all in the strict relativistic sense, all of our reference frames in the same way. God is sort of present in time in that way through us, um, while not being in it in quite the same absolute literal sense that, uh, that Craig believes. It really puts that sort of personal way of looking at things front and center and shows that there's no conflict between that and uh, looking at the world scientifically, that, uh, that we can have both a personalist way of looking at the world and a scientific one, because in the end, scientists are people too. At this point, quantum mechanics is called to mind. The observer is part of the world. We cannot be separated from the systems we observe. No matter how hard we try, we cannot be fully objective. There's a certain tendency in, in science to want to try and achieve a sort of view from nowhere, right? To see everything all at the same time with no biases and with no sort of personal differences to the way we look at the world. And the trouble is that that's not a way of looking at the world that we can ever actually get to. So I think Russell ha- really has something here that, that maybe it's better if we just say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm in this place. I am here now, and you know, relativity shows us that those those two things are closely related to each other, here and now. And this is who I am. And rather than trying to get outside of myself to deny that I am who I am and that I am where I am and that I am when I am, that all of these things affect the way I look at the world. And maybe that's not a distortion. Maybe that's just 
an important piece of a, of a sort of a mosaic of, of looking at the world. And by comparing our views with other people, we can, we can build that mosaic into, uh, you know, a, a broader view that doesn't sort of smooth out the differences between different points of view. We can travel in length, width, and height. We can explore and travel. But with time, we are, in a sense, trapped. We must go along with the flow of time, not being able to travel freely like we can in other dimensions. Why? I like to wonder if there is some sort of divine intelligence that came up with all of this, this messy system of time, and of relativity, and how we experience nows differently. Why? Why create a world like this? The advantage of time working this way where time is unfolding, right? You know, it's not just this, this, this other dimension-like space that we can walk around in at will. The idea of, of time as something that involves coming to be is that it allows us created beings to participate in the process of creation, to participate in creating the world, to participate in creating ourselves, and to participate in creating each other. The, the creation in this way of looking at things isn't like it's, it's not like God is painting a painting, right? So there's there's this, this painting I really love that's on display at the Art Institute of Chicago by this painter named Georges Seurat. Sunday afternoon on the island of the Grand Jatte, and um, it's it's a it's a great painting. It's a, a pointless painting about uh, it's of a bunch of people sitting on uh, a bank of the Seine in Paris on a summer afternoon, just doing their thing and. There's, you know, there's a couple sitting there under an umbrella. There's, there's a, a guy lying on the ground. There's a, there's a monkey. Um, so creation in, in this way of looking at things isn't quite like that painting where God says, you know, all right, do, 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 do. All right, you know, I've, now I've painted this tree. Now I've painted this person. Now I've painted this umbrella. Now I've painted this monkey. You know, these people are, you know, this person is done. Or this aspect of creation is done. I'm going to move on to this other thing. It's not as though God is, is the only agent in making things happen. The thing about time working the way it does, or at least the way I think it does, is that we get to collaborate. Because the future isn't set yet, we can put our own strokes on that painting. You know, we get to form ourselves rather than just being totally formed by God. And I think that's that's maybe part of, of God's love for us and God's joy in our existence, is to share this act of creation and to you know help us to exist more fully by creating in this way or helping to create. I certainly like this idea. We are co-creators of the world. We continually help to create the people that we become and the world we want to live in. We can never fully separate ourselves from it. It's a beautiful thought. Perhaps this is one of the lessons that time can give us. Like petals of a blossom, the world is unfolding around us into the beautiful creation that it will become. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. Thank you so much for going on this journey with me. I've been able to talk to some truly amazing people, and you, my listeners, have made it all possible. I'm going to be on break for the rest of 2021. In the meantime, if you're a patron of this podcast, you can check out bonus content coming out. A special thank you to all my patrons who helped me support this podcast in its operational costs. 
And if you're not a patron and you want to learn more, you can check out patreon.com sparkdialogue. And again, you can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Thank you again so much for listening. Background music you heard are clips from Urban Metronica, the Wu Ya mix by Spitting Merkaba, Black Ice by Mr. Yesterday, Ethereal Space by Snowflake, Warm Vacuum Tube by Admiral Bob, and Drops of H2O, the Filtered Water Treatment by Jay Lang. All of these songs are licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license, and links to these songs and more information can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com. 